0: Let's pray as we prepare to uh, open God's word once more. Father in heaven, my prayer this morning is that you would minimize the messenger. Uh, God forbid that my person, my personality, uh, my weaknesses, my faults and uh, foibles would get in the way of your word. Lord, minimize the messenger and exalt the message, exalt the gospel exalt your word, exalt Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is our prayer that he would shine forth and be magnified and that our hearts would be moved and encouraged uh, as we listen. And Lord, that we would then go out and be doers of the word by the enablement and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus and for your sake, amen. I wonder how you would complete this sentence, the life of Christianity consists very much in, some of us might finish that sentence by saying this, the life of Christianity consists very much in making use of every moment to do works of discipleship and evangelism to the glory of God others might finish the sentence in this way the life of christianity consists very much in giving attention to the human person in our being there's some glorious angelic music playing suddenly (laughs) a reminder to turn your cell phones off uh, while you're in worship um, giving attention to the human person, and our being healed, in our being reconstructed, in our being fortified, strengthened by Jesus. Maybe that's how you'd answer the question. Still others might fill in the blank here by saying this, the life of Christianity consists very much in constantly fine-tuning our theology so that we are not led astray by the spirit of the age. Or maybe there are some who might complete the sentence by saying this, the life of Christianity consists very much in contending for the truth in the midst of a dark world. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those answers. None of them are totally bad. There are elements of truth in each of them. But the original sentence, the original sentence which was written actually in the 17th century by an English Puritan minister named Thomas Vincent, the original sentence did not end in any of those ways. So here now I give you the original sentence written by Thomas Vincent. He said, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love unto Christ. So according to Thomas Vincent, it is love to jesus that characterizes the christian's very existence the life of christianity consists very much in our love unto christ vincent went on to say this without love unto christ we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it is without natural life. So I want you to get that picture there. Vincent says that a person who has no affection toward Jesus Christ, a person who has no love toward Jesus can be compared to the carcass of a dead animal that is lying on the side of the highway. There is no spiritual life there. Well, friends, this sets us up this morning to ask a very serious self-examination question. It is very wise for each of us to ask this question seriously to ourselves and to do that on a regular basis. And the question is very simple. Do I love Jesus? Am I right now in love with with Jesus, am I nourishing actively and nurturing my love for him? Am I making an effort to make that love flourish more than it is already? Another way we can frame the question is doing it like this, to ask ourselves, where where on the path of Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37 am I? Matthew 22:37 37 is the first and greatest commandment, of course. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Am I a person who can say that I am at least working by the enablement and the power of the Holy Spirit, at least working to love Jesus Christ with the whole of me well the passage of scripture that we have under consideration this morning is revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 where the issue of love to jesus christ is really the central issue revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 this is the first portion of a larger section of scripture where Jesus, we could say, is really giving a state of the union concerning his whole church. Revelation two and Revelation three is where Jesus addresses seven churches in Asia Minor, and we're going to take the next seven weeks to listen to each of those individual addresses, uh, one per week. Now, it's no accident that there are seven churches addressed in these chapters. Seven, as we have noted so many times from this pulpit, seven is the Bible's number of wholeness, the Bible's number of completion. So in addressing seven churches, Jesus is addressing the whole church. He's addressing the complete Christian community throughout all of history. He is addressing you and I as his church and he is addressing all of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe and across time. Now, church, isn't it wonderful that we have the head of the church, Jesus Christ, addressing us like this? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it hugely beneficial for us to have Jesus speaking direct words of commendation Direct words of critique, direct words of warning, and direct words of promise to us as his church. Well, we have such words here in these chapters. We have, friends, nothing less than the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to his church here. I agree with Dennis Johnson when he suggests that the one thing, listen, the one thing that we need, as the church, is to hear Jesus' voice and then to heed his voice. The church can so easily go off track, can't it, Into, into all manner of secondary priorities but the primary thing, the primary thing for us as his church is to listen to his voice and to heed his voice. Speaking of the power of the voice of Jesus to his church, Johnson says this, quote, What does his voice do? His voice comforts our weak and wounded hearts, diagnoses our diseases, shatters our dreams of ease in the here and now, and calls us forward to the consummation of his victory in the new Jerusalem johnson says his voice addresses us today in his letters to the seven churches of asia for each letter is what the spirit says to all the churches and so my friends let's listen hard now shall we listen hard together to the voice of jesus speaking to his church are you with me are you with me (laughs) amen so we begin our 7-day seven, 7 Sunday adventure in Revelation 2 verse 1. Jesus says, "To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write." Each of the 7 churches in this section of Holy Scripture have an angel, a sort of guardian angel. An angel who presides over each of the seven churches. The words of Jesus are addressed, first of all, to those seven angels, but his words, of course, are designed to be heard by the people of each church. Jesus begins here by addressing the church in Ephesus. Remember that the Apostle John, as he's writing this book of Revelation, he's writing from the island of Patmos. And if we look there on the map, if you take a look at that map, hopefully you can read the little words that I have there. Um, He's writing from the island of Patmos. And we can see the reasoning here for the church of Ephesus being addressed first. It's first from Patmos and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, until finally the seventh church that is addressed is Laodicea, the church in Laodicea. So the the addressing of the churches follows a geographical route. It goes geographically from the southwest up to the north and then down to the southeast. Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus first. And of course, from reading the New Testament, we know that this church in Ephesus had a very special history. Listen, the Apostle Paul, with his co-workers Priscilla and Aquila, had planted this church. Paul had spent more time here at Ephesus than he did at any other single place. Three of Paul's letters were sent to Ephesus, namely Ephesians and First and 2 Timothy, and 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus. Years after the church had been planted by Paul and his friends in Ephesus, Timothy became its pastor, and Timothy's pastorate in Ephesus was then followed by the Apostle John becoming its pastor. Imagine having Timothy and then the Apostle John as your pastor. Not to mention the fact that Mary, mother of Jesus, had also been a member of this church. As Daryl Johnson has said, imagine celebrating Christmas Eve and Christmas with the mother of Jesus (laughs) as a member of your church. Wow. So the, the church in Ephesus had quite the history. It was quite the church. And the city of Ephesus itself was a marvel to behold during the first century. There were over 200,000 people living in this city by the time John wrote the book of Revelation. Ephesus was a major seaport. It was a major financial center during the time. The city had a noteworthy library and it also had an amphitheater that sat 24,000 people. And Ephesus also boasted something that I personally think is really cool, which is a gladiator's graveyard. That's pretty cool. One of the seven wonders of the world was located in Ephesus, the temple of the goddess Artemis. But Ephesus, friends, Ephesus was also the home to a lot of magic and occult practices. So one of the crucial needs for the early Christians who lived in this place was the need for spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus and he says to them, still in verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we know exactly what the seven stars are that are held here in the right hand of Jesus because in Revelation 1, verse 20, Jesus has already told us that the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. And the seven golden lampstands here are the seven churches themselves. This fact is also confirmed in Revelation 1, verse 20. But what we need to notice very carefully, I want you to notice this very carefully, is that Jesus is described as walking among, get this picture, walking among the seven golden lampstands, walking among the seven churches, walking among his whole church, This is so important, friends. Jesus does not stand aloof from his church. Jesus does not stand separated off from his church. He walks among his church. Amen? Right now, the risen Jesus is with us. He's with us in what Eugene Peterson has called the messy family room. That is the church. I think that's a great picture for the church. It's like a messy family room. Jesus walks in the midst of that messy family room. He he walks among his church. And as he walks among his church, as Daryl Johnson has said, quote, he is like a divine quality control inspector. Like a divine quality control inspector walking around the churches, investigating and scrutinizing every corner of the church's life." Close quote. So Jesus Christ is with us now, Snowden Baptist Church. He is investigating and scrutinizing every aspect of our life together. And doesn't this make all the difference? To modify the illustration of my professor, James Hamilton, if Premier Legault were to walk into our church today, to visit our church, to worship with us, probably, probably we would acknowledge the Premier's presence with us and we would act with the appropriate demeanor, with the appropriate attitudes. But the thing is this, friends, each and every Sunday, someone infinitely more worthy someone infinitely more honorable and significant and authoritative than the premier is in our midst in our presence here and that's the risen Jesus Christ are we demonstrating the appropriate demeanor the appropriate attentiveness to his word the appropriate reverence that he is due in our worship service, knowing that he walks amongst us? That's a question. Well, in verse 2, verses 2 through 4, actually, of our passage, Jesus presents what I'm calling the picture of the church in Ephesus. The picture. He reviews what has been going on in the church. Jesus says to his church, i know your works in verse 3 jesus will say i know once again jesus knows all about his church why because jesus walks among his church i know your works your toil and your patient endurance And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And then verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Who's weary after COVID? You have not grown weary, says Jesus. Now, what I want to draw attention to here in verses 2 and 3 is what I am calling the strenuousness, the strenuousness that was apparent in the Ephesian church, the strenuousness. You almost get out of breath reading these verses. There's, there's a lot of sweat, a lot of strain, a lot of endurance and expended oxygen in this church. Let's just note this. Jesus commends the church for their, notice the words, works and their toil in verse 2. This was an active church, active in doing things, working and toiling. The, The word translated toil is a word that describes exhausting labor, exhausting labor. This was a church with no couch potatoes and no pew warmers. They were involved and they were active in strenuous works. And to add to that, twice in these verses, we have the Greek word "hupomane." Hupomane. In verse two, the word is translated as, into English, as patient endurance. And in verse three, it's translated as enduring patiently. Patient endurance, and enduring patiently. The idea is that the church members in Ephesus had been persevering patiently through difficult circumstances. They had been long suffering through a trying situation. In the face of hardship, they had been holding out as a church. And the head of the church, Jesus Christ, commends them for this perseverance for this endurance this is something that jesus approves what had they been persevering through and for that matter what sorts of works and toil exactly had they been engaged in well i think we get a huge hint in the last part of verse 2 as to what their work and their toil and their endurance had to do with jesus mentions that the ephesian church could not, notice, could not bear with those who are evil. He mentions that the church had tested, that's an action of the church, they had tested those who call themselves apostles but were not and found them to be false. So it would seem that wolves had infiltrated the sheepfold in Ephesus people who had come into this church claiming to be apostles but these people were demonstrating doctrinal error and they were spreading doctrinal error and the church on their part they had been laboring enduring toiling through the trial they had been busy evaluating discerning examining and possibly disciplining and rooting out the wolves from their midst. Now when Paul planted this church, when he planted this church in Ephesus, he spoke to the elders and he warned them. In Acts 20 verse 29, Paul said to the elders of the church of Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you Not sparing the flock. Well, it seems that by the time Jesus is addressing the church here in Revelation chapter 2, Paul's prophecy had come true. The wolves had come in. And now the Ephesian church was laboring, toiling, sweating, enduring under the weight of discerning these people and rooting them out. My professor and friend James Hamilton of Southern Seminary reminds us that the testing and the refusal of false teachers in the church is still required. In 2021, he says this quote: "There are false messengers today, just as there were false messengers in the Ephesian church. We must know the gospel, know our Bibles." and know Christian theology, so that we can tell the difference between someone who increases our faith in Jesus by telling us the truth about his greatness and someone who makes us feel good about ourselves by giving us pep talks and encouragement to rely on our own resources. We must know the difference. Jesus commends the Ephesian church for not growing weary in the task of bearing up for his name's sake, for the sake of his reputation. He commends them for not growing weary in the task of enduring patiently through such a trialsome season in their lives. For not giving up on the task of discerning, evaluating, rooting out false apostles. Now, friends, if the passage ended here at verse 3, we'd have to give the Ephesian church an A-plus on their report card, right? Everything that Jesus has mentioned so far has been entirely praiseworthy and good. And so we ask, what could possibly be wrong with a church who are exercising discernment who are enduring patiently, who love the truth, orthodox theology, what could possibly be wrong with a church who are energetic and strenuous in works and in toil? What could possibly be wrong? Well, as John Stott once put it, the Lord looks with piercing eyes of flame. On this Ephesian church and he discovers a great flaw. So even with all of the commendation in verses 2 and 3 now in verse 4 Jesus voices the great flaw that he has discerned in his church at Ephesus. Verse 4 Jesus says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If you have an NIV Bible in front of you, you might see the word forsaken there. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Or in the King James Version and in the New American Standard Bible, the translation choice is the word left. Thou hast left thy first love. I want you to remember our quote from the Puritan Thomas Vincent. The life of Christianity consists very much in what? Our love unto Christ. Vincent argued that way because of this verse in Revelation, amongst others. The thing that concerns Jesus Christ our Lord here. In Revelation 2, verse 4, despite all that he has commended the church for, and there has been a lot, the thing that concerns him is an abandonment or a forsaking of the love that had been apparent in them at first. Where are we at, church? What does the New Testament emphasize so strongly? It emphasizes both love for the Lord and love for neighbor. Amen? Love for the Lord and love for neighbor. All we need to do is listen to Jesus Christ in Matthew 22 again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus. Love for God and love for others. And in 1 John 4.21, love for God and love for others are linked up organically. Love for God and love for others linked up organically. As John says there, listen to what he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love for God, friends, and love for others go together, they grow together. So reading the New Testament then, I am convinced that the love here in the church of Ephesus that had been abandoned or forsaken was love for God, all right, love for Jesus, as well as love for others it was both because they go together let's get even more specific Greg Beale helps us here and I agree with him that the lovelessness the lovelessness that Jesus diagnoses here has to do with a failure in the church of Ephesus to witness to Jesus in the world a failure to witness to Jesus in the world, a failure to witness. When you are in love with Jesus, I mean, when your heart is on fire and in love with Him, that love is going to spill over into witnessing to others about His goodness, about His beauty, about His love, and about His rescue. Witnessing, in fact, is a fruit of, Of your love for Jesus and your love and your concern for others. The church in Ephesus had been preoccupied, as so many churches get to this place, preoccupied with internal issues in their church and they had not been witnessing to Jesus in the world. And the reason we argue that a failure to witness is in play here is because in verse 1, Get this, in verse 1, it's clear that Jesus is walking where? In the midst of the seven lampstands. And down in verse 5 of our passage, what is the threat that Jesus is going to issue to this church in Ephesus? The, The threat is the removal of the lampstand unless they repent. Lampstands are for what? For lamps, for lights, lights that shine so that others can see. Did Jesus not say in the Sermon on the Mount that the lamp is to be put on the stand? The lamp is to be put on the stand so that the lamp shines out into the world. What good is a lamp stand without its light? If the light won't shine, in other words, if the church won't witness then the lampstand may as well be removed and that's precisely what Jesus threatens to do here in Ephesus. So friends, the church in Ephesus, despite their toil, their endurance, their standing for theological orthodoxy, despite that, they were diminished in love. Love for God and love for others which, if it was there, it would work itself out in witness. Now, it was evident that the Ephesians loved truth, right? After all, they had been examining so-called apostles, examining them doctrinally, and had determined them to be false apostles based on the doctrine that they were teaching and preaching. The Ephesians loved truth, and they were making sure that the truth was preached, but Jesus... With his piercing discernment observes that love to him love to his person and love toward others these things had been skating away in the church of Ephesus these things were being forsaken now you and I I want you to listen we can so easily get into a pattern where if you think of a volume dial the volume gets turned up significantly concerning our works for the kingdom, concerning our strivings for the Lord, our service to the Lord, our steadfast contending for the truth. And meanwhile, the volume of our love and affection for the person of Jesus our love and compassion and affection for others gets turned way down. We can so easily forget that God just happens to be so interested in our love to him and in our love to neighbor that he gives those two loves as his first and second commandments, the greatest commandments, love to God and love to others. Okay then, what is the course correction in such a situation? What's the prescription to remedy this forsaking of love? Well, in verse 5, Jesus begins to lay out his prescription. He's the great physician. He's laying out his prescription for this disease of lovelessness. In verse 5, Jesus begins... And he issues three imperatives. We need to see this. He issues three commands. The commands in this verse are remember, repent, and do. Remember, repent, and do. He says first, remember, there's the first one, remember therefore from where you have fallen. That is, call to mind what it looked like at first When you first fell in love and see the drip, 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 drip flood downward to this place you're at now, go back to the first. Remember from where you have fallen. Well, I want to say that in our initial days of courtship, when I was falling in love with my wife some years ago now, 26 or 27, I've lost track, I made excuses to go over to her apartment in the Jasper Place neighborhood of Edmonton, just to spend time with her. In those beautiful days, everything else in my life really began to take a back seat, if I could just be with her. Remember, Jesus says, remember those early days when your love was fresh, when your love was special, The call to each and every person in the church here is to remember the initial onset of our love to Jesus Christ and then repent, says Jesus. That is, turn around, do a U-turn, because what's capturing, capturing your attention right now is something other than love to Christ and love to others. Repent because you have developed attitudes, you have developed habits, you have developed ways of thinking and being that have dulled your affections to God and to others. Turn from those things, repent, that's what repent means, turn around, change your mind and do that with vigor and do that with purpose. Confess that you are loving things other than Jesus too much." So easy for us to get there. Turn from those things and turn toward Jesus. So remember, repent, and then do. Do the works you did at first, says Jesus. Notice in verse 4 we have that phrase, love you had at first. And now in verse 5 we have, do the works you did at first. At first. Now, I want to speak to the guys who are listening just for a minute. Guys, when you fell in love with your lady at first, what happens in that moment? You go out of your way to show that love, right? You buy flowers. You write poems. Maybe you you get really daring and you cook a meal. You've never cooked before, but you're going to cook her a nice meal. Uh, Jesus says here, rewind the tape, to the first some of us have been believers for a long time rewind the tape to that time at first when you first were in love with me do the things you did at first one thing that i remember from my early days as a believer it's a very fond memory for me uh, is when i would prayerfully slowly read through the word every morning and i would do that by the light of a kerosene lamp that i had Uh, kind of this nice warm glow on the page of the Bible. And I would just enjoy the presence of Jesus for hour after hour, every morning, meditating on the gospel, um, seeing my need more clearly of what Jesus has provided. I remember in those juicy days, those early days, my love to Jesus, my sight of his worth and his beauty were being quickened. And we're being increased. Do the works you did at first. Do those works that quicken love to me and love to others, Jesus says. Do those things that will nourish that love and sustain that love. Again, the prescription of Jesus here for this problem of abandoned love is to remember, repent, and do. And then in verse 5 comes the peril. I tried to get P words for all these. Picture, prescription, now peril. The peril if the prescription is not followed. Unless the church regains lost love for Jesus and lost love for others by following the prescription that Jesus has laid out, Jesus will act against his church. He will act against his church. Just as in the Old Testament, there were times when God acted against his people Israel. Jesus says, listen very carefully, church. Heed the word of God. If not, that is, church, if you fail to follow my prescription, I will come to you, and do what? And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a clear warning from the head of the church. Friends, remember that the church belongs to Jesus not to us who does Snowden Baptist Church belong to who does it belong to Jesus let's say the name of Jesus out loud who does the Snowden Church belong to Jesus amen Jesus has commissioned his church not us Jesus may do with his church what Jesus deems best If the light of witness to the world is non-existent on the lampstand, the lampstand will be taken away. Or as James Hamilton puts it, Jesus threatens here, I love the phrase, Jesus threatens here to unchurch the church. To unchurch the church unless there is repentance. This is very serious. Amen? Very serious. Now, follow this. What's interesting in this passage is that in verse 4, the focus is love, right? We've seen that, namely, lost love to God and to others. That's what's happening in verse 4. He's concerned about love. But now in verse 6, listen, Jesus commends the Ephesians for their hate. What did the pastor just say? (laughs) Yes, you heard me right. Jesus commends... The Ephesian church for their hate watch this Jesus says to them yet this you have this is a good thing you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate get this friends mark this The church is commended by its head, Jesus Christ, for hating the things that he hates. Amen? Hating the things that he hates. I wonder, do we hate the things that Jesus hates in our pluralistic, tolerant community of Canada? Do we hate the things that Jesus hates? Do we know what those things are? And do we love the things that Jesus loves? What does Jesus hate here? Well, notice carefully that, very carefully, that he does not hate persons. He does not hate these people called the Nicolaitans. Rather, he hates the works of these people, right? It's clear in the text. He hates the deeds and the practices of these people. Now we have precious little information on the Nicolaitans. The only other time that they get mentioned in the New Testament is nine verses after this in Revelation 2 verse 15 and in that context these people are compared compared to the Old Testament character Balaam Balaam had enticed Balak and had enticed Israel toward idolatry and sexual immorality. And so probably these Nicolaitans were present in Ephesus and they were doing what? They were attempting to entice people toward idolatry and toward sexual immorality and Jesus hated that. And he commends the church in Ephesus for hating it with him. Friends, church, I want to ask you the question again, do we know what to hate with Jesus? And finally, verse 7 this morning, my friend, are you a saved person? Are you an elect person of Christ's kingdom? Then, if that is the case, you have been given spiritual ears. So, he or she who has an ear, let him hear Let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hearing what the Spirit says in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, hearing results in doing. There's a close connection between hearing and doing in both Testaments, responding positively to what is heard. And then Jesus gives us the magnificent promise, the final P word, promise to the one who, what? Conquers. Conquers what? In the immediate context, what needs to be conquered is lovelessness to God and to others. What needs to be prevailed upon is a failure to witness to the outside world out of love for Jesus and love for others. What needs to be nurtured and what needs to be nourished throughout this passage is love for God and love for others. To the one who conquers lovelessness i will grant what now catch this i will grant to eat you like eating as you can tell i do i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god ever since genesis chapter 3 god's cherubim with flaming swords have barred the entrance to the tree of life. As Greg Beal puts it, here in Revelation 2.7, he says, the tree of life together with the paradise of God symbolizes what? It symbolizes the life-giving presence of God from which Adam and Eve were separated when they were cast out of the garden. But to the victorious, conquering believer... Jesus is going to grant access, amen, to the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree being for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, verse 2. This is a magnificent promise to the conquering believer. We get to eat of the tree of life. All right, so having come through our passage now, all seven verses, what have we seen here? Just to review, we've seen at the start that Jesus is glorious. In fact, all of Revelation 1 before this is a vision of the glory, the grandeur of Jesus Christ. We've seen in Revelation 2 1 that Jesus is glorious amidst his church, exalted amidst his church. And we've listened as Jesus presented the picture. of his church in, in Ephesus in verses 2 through 4, and then again in verse 6. Jesus, as the one walking among his church, presents both positive and negative aspects of the life of this church. And for the negative aspect of cold love, Jesus has given a clear prescription the church must remember, repent, and do, verse 5, and they must hear the Spirit and respond, verse 7. Christ's church must actively, listen, must actively take pains to rekindle and nourish love for Jesus and love for others, which issues in witness to Him in the world. If this fails to happen, Jesus outlines the peril. He will personally come and remove the lampstand. He will unchurch the church. And then last, Jesus holds out the magnificent promise to the one who conquers, and in the context conquers lovelessness, he will grant to eat of the tree of life. Believer, I close with this. You and I are the church. Amen? You and I are the church of Jesus Christ. The church was not our idea. We didn't choose this particular group of people in this place to come together with every Sunday, Jesus Christ did. The church is not our creation, it is his. The church is not ours to manage. The church has been saved by Jesus Christ, it has been created by Jesus Christ, and it belongs to Jesus Christ, amen? Jesus loved the church, and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25. He is our head, and he stands in the midst as the risen one with all authority, with the nail prints that purchased the church, still visible on his hands. Who are we? We are the Church of Christ, Romans 16.16. The church of Christ. And Ephesians 5.24, the church must submit to Christ. And so, church, I wonder, have we attended to the voice of Jesus in his word today? Will we follow the prescription, even this week, remembering, repenting, doing, hearing, and heeding, knowing with Thomas Vincent, that the life of Christianity consists very much in our love unto Christ. Let's pray for God's help. Lord, it is magnificent and it is uh, benevolent and merciful of you to give us these seven letters to these seven churches, which is an address to your whole church throughout time. It's an address to us. We thank you, Lord God, for your evaluation. And so often we can go as a church and not sit under this word and, and, and start to think that we can manage the church and that it's all about our ideas and our plans and designs. It's not. It's about you as our head getting glory through us. And so, Father, I pray for every person who's listened today that your Holy Spirit has worked and moved, and that as we go into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest of the week, that this word not be forgotten, but that you would bring it to our remembrance and make us doers of it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.